This is a Diet of Brussels. What's happening with the white paper? Those of you who have listened to this podcast since the early days, back in 2015, a simpler time when Brexit was just a huge issue rather than absolutely a massive one, will remember that I used to provide episodes on events pretty much on the day as they were happening. I've not done it in this case, partly for practical reasons, but also because I've not really known what the answer's going to be to that question. Despite the bit more than a week since this uh, white paper was produced, uh, we've seen so much happening that uh, the evaluation of its chances uh, seems to change from hour to hour. But now I've had a chance to sort of... uh, think about it a bit more, talk to a few more people, uh, I think we're probably in a position to make some more useful comments. In terms of the substance, I'm not going to go too much into that because largely the the white paper is just an expansion, a more uh, detailed version of what uh, is in the Chequers Agreement. And you can listen to that episode uh, on the podcast, if you go to the website at www.adietofbrussels.com. In terms of what there is beyond that, I think we've seen uh, some more detail, but clearly a lot of what this white paper is about is what there is not uh, laid out in detail. So we still don't have very much about uh, the services arm of uh, the proposal, uh, uh, partly because uh, the government argues this is a more dynamic area, but also because clearly nobody could really agree on what there was happening. Uh, the section on free movement of people is uh, defined more by what is uh, not said than by what is. So uh, again, clearly some uh, lacunae there and some things that will only become apparent uh, when uh, they're actually implemented. One of the major points that I'd like to dwell on in this white paper is the question of an implementation period. Now this is mentioned in a couple of places but never really spelt out or discussed at any length. The area where it most obviously uh, would apply relates to the implementation of the UK's suggestion of a facilitated customs arrangement, this FCA, uh, which would take some time to to come about. And uh, this is where implementation comes in. Now, one of the things that's not clear is whether that is something that is uh, going to be time-defined or conditions-defined. You know, is it you've got until this date to, to get that together, or is it it will come in to effect when it's ready uh, and that takes as long as it takes. Now, there are other areas where there are mentions of it in relations to audit, for example. Um, but at the same time, if you look at the trading arrangement, very much framed in terms of what the UK can do uh, from uh, next March, once the transition period's in place. Uh, but clearly one of the, the big gaps in this document is How do we get to this steady state new relationship that is uh, being proposed uh, in the document? Does that start on the 1st of January 
2021, at the end of the transition period? Does it happen later? Uh, and if it happens later, what does the relationship look like until then? Is it uh, an extension of the transition arrangements? So basically membership uh, minus voting. Or is it uh, something else? Is it uh, lopsided that you move to things progressively? And clearly here, the proposal in the white paper to have uh, a collection of agreements and text suggests that this might be uh, a multi-speed process. Some bits can go faster than others. But again, what do you do until then? Do you fall off the cliff edge at the end of transition or do you build a bridge across to the new relations? Now, these things matter not just for the white paper, but also for the withdrawal agreement, because it's still very clear that the EU wants to sort out the withdrawal agreement first before it gets on to the future relationship. So if we can't have some answers to those problems uh, until uh, uh, beforehand, then we, we have a real issue. So part of this model that the British government has of uh, looking to the end state to then work back to the intermediate states, I think is something which is going to become uh, ever more of a live issue. In terms of how uh, the government positions itself uh, on this, initially the reaction was, as we know, uh, fairly supportive. The initial days of uh, checkers, we saw lots of people writing pieces in newspapers and going on TV shows and saying nice things about it, or not uh, overly conflictual things. And then we had the round of resignations on uh, the Monday uh, after the Friday, so David Davis and then Boris Johnson, and then a kind of a rolling battle uh, of uh, the backbenches with the cabinets. Now, that suggested uh, a number of problems, and those really kind of manifested themselves in the, the rolling uh, set of resignations from more junior and uh, less substantial positions from the hard side, uh, from party and government roles, and also then the orchestration of wrecking amendments uh, to uh, the pieces of legislation that were coming through Parliament this week, so on customs and on trade. Now I call them wrecking amendments because one of the fairly explicit agendas of uh, these uh, proposals was to make it impossible to pursue this model that uh, the government had laid out in the white paper. In particular on the customs arrangement there were a couple of uh, amendments which seemed to uh, blow the whole thing out of the water. One was to uh, prevent the imposition of any uh, customs uh, controls uh, in the Irish Sea between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. And the other was to prevent the UK from collecting any EU tariffs, uh, which would have uh, caused problem for the uh, uh, FCA arrangement. Now, the government accepted all of the amendments that were proposed after some debate, and as a result, despite uh, a soft Brexiteer uh, backlash and some tight votes on Monday, uh, they were accepted. Likewise, uh, the attempt to try and commit uh, the British government to a uh, customs union, should it not be able to agree an alternative, 
which was an amendment made to the trade bill on Tuesday, was unsuccessful. So we seem to have a situation where the government has accepted amendments designed to wreck its uh, uh, white paper approach, uh, and the hard Brexiters seem to have got uh, the upper hand. But is that really the case? The understanding that I have from uh, government uh, officials is that the amendments don't actually uh, cause the problem that they were intended to do. Uh, it has always been government policy that uh, there should be no uh, disruption to the territorial integrity of the UK. So anything that is specific to Northern Ireland uh, was always going to be unacceptable. And to put that into law is no real barrier or problem for government policy. On the matter of uh, collection of EU duties, uh, the argument is that actually when you read the white paper in detail, uh, the government had never suggested that there would be full reciprocity, that uh, each would collect tariffs for the other, but rather that you'd have a, a system where if there was a difference in uh, tariffs for goods entering the UK, uh, which then ended up in the EU, that then you'd have a reconciliation. So a rather different kind of model to the one that uh, the amendment seeks to preclude. So the argument is, is that this is still on the road. And you certainly have seen the government acting in a way that suggests that this still is their policy and that it's still a viable policy for them to pursue domestically, that they're not now bound by legislation within uh, the terms of either the customs or the trade uh, bills as they go along. Now we can see that in a number of ways. Firstly, we've seen uh, the resumption of Article 50 negotiations in Brussels. Uh, we've got Dominic Raab, the new uh, Dexu Secretary uh, Minister, going to uh, Brussels this week. Uh, to meet with Michel Barnier for the first time. We have uh, a round of, extensive round of bilateral diplomacy between uh, the British government and member states uh, to go and sell this. Lots of briefings to uh, MPs, to embassies and missions, uh, to academics, dare I say it, and to think tanks, to try and sell the message of what this document is and why they think it's... Uh, uh, precise, responsible, and credible, to use a phrase that was uh, offered to me. Now, the domestic side of this, I think, is still unclear, quite frankly. Uh, notwithstanding the government's position on those amendments, and given that it now has avoided uh, further uh, disruption and uh, this has been recorded just after Boris Johnson's resignation speech, which doesn't seem to be particularly incendiary. Uh, you know, it's uh, what you might expect a Boris Johnson resignation speech to look like. It's, it's about Boris Johnson rather than about anything else. Uh, and his stated intention is not to trash uh, Theresa May, but rather to try and get rid of the policy that uh, she is pursuing. So this is really within the bounds of, uh, well, I was going to say polite behaviour, but that's not really the right words that I should be using. It's still within the bounds of uh, 
a potentially viable political project. But clearly uh, what this week has shown is that the Conservatives find themselves finally balanced between hard and soft factions and that pretty much everybody appears to be a rebel in some way uh, up or down from the, the current offer uh, to an extent that raises some real questions about the longevity of the compromise that has been offered. Coupled to that, we also have problems in other parties. We have a Labour Party that has kept very quiet about its preferred policy outcomes, uh, has suffers from its own internal defections, and the government uh, passed its uh, uh, some of its uh, amendments only with the help of Labour uh, rebels uh, who uh, were pro-leave. Uh, so for that, I think that raises some questions for them too. We also have the uh, slightly bizarre situation where the uh, most uh, openly pro-EU party, the Liberal Democrats, found that two of their MPs uh, missed the vote on Monday because they were attending other events and they hadn't planned themselves properly for this. However, and this is the big however, the white paper is not about domestic politics solely. It is about the UK's positioning within Article 50 and within the broader Brexit process. And there I think we have some real question marks that are emerging. The EU has sat on its hands and bitten its tongue and held its mouth and done everything that you do when you don't want to say anything. Uh, literally, there has been no more than acknowledgements of gratitude for the production of the document and commitments to go away and think about it and discuss it and uh, to work on it too. So in public terms, it's really very much uh, trying to keep the show on the road. At the same time, uh, a lot of uh, more private briefing saying that there are real problems with the proposal that is uh, on the table. Be that in terms of the attempt to divide up the different freedoms between uh, goods, services, people and capital or the role of the Court of Justice, which has a very complicated uh, uh, formulation in this document and one that doesn't obviously uh, fit with the EU's uh, preferences. And most importantly, no explicit mechanism for addressing the Irish dimension in this, except by inference. And again, this comes back to that implementation uh, period question. If it could be that the UK could uh, sign up, get a commitment to a political in a political declaration alongside the withdrawal agreement to some uh, ideal end state, uh, the UK, EU might accept that if there was an acceptance by the UK that in the interim you maintained either the transitional arrangements or something else that looked a lot like the backstop. So the ambiguities and the uncertainties coupled with it has to be said the the profound uncertainty about the, the longevity of the may government and its capacity to actually carry through a legislative program of any kind makes it really uncertain at the eu level about how much they can go with this however 
really very much keen to do so because there isn't really time now to come up with an alternative. So notwithstanding Boris Johnson's comments about uh, the white paper being uh, Brexit in name only, uh, there isn't, at least in his speech and actually nowhere else, uh, a constructive and elaborated and detailed model of what an alternative could look like. So the EU is frustrated but bound by uh, its necessity and its desire to find uh, a result. Uh, but then we now have a complication which is that part of the rhetoric here in the UK has been about how the UK has made some big concessions, which it has, and how the ball is now in the EU's court and the EU too must make concessions. Now, uh, I think... I think for those in Brussels to be told that they need to pick up the pace, sort themselves out, get a move on because uh, time is running out, uh, will somewhat stick in uh, the craw, given that uh, it has been the UK that has been the source of pretty much all of the delays so far uh, in Article 50 and actually prior to Article 50 as well. So, uh, in terms of getting people on side with your message, I'm not sure that the British uh, approach has been the ideal one. Uh, and I think the uh, response has been, well, at the moment we're still considering our options and we're thinking about how we can do it. All of this then brings us back to this question of, well, where are we with this white paper? Again, as I noted with the Chequers Agreement, on the one hand, it comes with a lot of obvious problems, a lot of incompatibilities between UK and EU positions, uh, a lot of things that aren't really spelled out that need to be spelled out. And uh, it comes with a questionable degree of uh, parliamentary support uh, behind Theresa May. So how much... Uh, of a majority does she have? How much can she count on in the final analysis? At the same time, it's better than having nothing. It's just a lot better than having nothing. That uh, We know that we've not really had any substantive negotiations since the end of last calendar year, uh, that there hasn't been progress because the UK hasn't had a position to work uh, from. So, uh, Really the challenge now is whether uh, there is enough in this, whether it can be made into a curate's egg, uh, to make it a, a basis for progress. And again, I think it's really important to stress the difference between the agreements on the withdrawal, the Article 50 deal in the narrow sense, and uh, the future relationship that uh, follows, that uh, we know that there will be a political declaration, the intention is to have a political declaration uh, attached to the withdrawal agreement, which is, if you like, a statement of intent, you know, this is what we want the relationship to look like, and this is really what that white paper is about, is what we want the relationship to look like. Now, the, the challenge, or the, the uncertainty, is, is that political declaration uh, a couple of lines or a couple of pages that just say uh, we want to be really good friends and let's do as much as we can together and let's all be nice to each other and uh, you know let's not fight and uh, we have so much in common blah 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 or is it a much more substantive document 
in line with what the white paper sets out, which says we want to do this in this area, that in that area, and this framework is the one that we want to pursue. Now that matters, uh, partly because it helps shape what happens in the withdrawal agreement, but uh, just as importantly, uh, it also potentially uh, gives uh, all parties some cover in terms of selling that withdrawal agreement. That if they can say, well, look, we're making some uh, concessions here locally for the withdrawal, uh, but in the long run, we're heading in the right kind of direction, that might become important. It also matters because once we get to next March, uh, and assuming we have a withdrawal agreement, then we have a breakneck uh, race to try and negotiate something in time for the end of 2020, which uh, I've yet to meet anyone who thinks really that that is enough time to do so. So the more you can have a detailed roadmap agreed at the beginning of the period, the more chance you have of actually uh, pursuing that map to its logical conclusion, which is a new agreement uh, agreed and ratified in time for transition as planned. So uh, there is utility in talking about the future before you've sorted out the present, but that doesn't mean that the present isn't important. So I think maybe one of the most telling things is that uh, at the end of this week, we've got Theresa May making our first trip to the border uh, region to Northern Ireland to talk with people to demonstrate her volition and I think that will be a really critical point. Has she got a me mechanism, a way of signalling that she has a plan for addressing the Irish dimension so that uh, the withdrawal agreement can be unlocked so that there can then be negotiations on that future relationship? And if she can, then this white paper certainly will grow in value uh, and utility. If she can't, and we can't resolve the Irish dimension, then that other part of checkers that we don't really talk about, contingency planning, is going to become ever more important in Whitehall and in other European capitals. On that happy note, I shall leave you, and uh, doubtless we shall talk about this some more in the coming weeks. <laughs>